that one or not. Do you would you be willing? Um, we're gonna we're gonna pick it up. Uh, yeah, I got you from page one eighteen. Um, so we'll start on on page one eighteen. Carl, you need one. Um, don't don't. Uh, I'm gonna make. A, I'll make a. Never mind. Go ahead. No, I'm trying to think, and I should just not do that. Go ahead. Uh, so as we put it together today, today we're going to start uh, dealing as we're, we're going to finish up the the attributes of God that are left. Next time we're going to talk about the doctrine of man. After that, we'll talk about the doctrine of salvation. If you still have your syllabus, uh, we'll we'll work our way through those two, and then uh, and then we'll start building on the the uh, arguments, putting together arguments, uh, talking about the defense of the faith in regard to issues that we that, that we have come up, and probably I have a, a bill and and Jonathan share some, especially when we get to that part, because uh, they they tend to be out on the corner. Uh, over at Planned Parenthood and ask, being asked the, some of the questions so you can see some of the, the, the things that they've been utilizing at least out there uh, here locally in, in terms of response. So we'll talk about particularly uh, Mormons, particularly uh, Muslims, Islam, and then uh, your basic run-of-the-mill atheists. So, so uh, And then if you have questions or things as we're working those things out, we'll probably work through some some mock discussions and, and let you guys get a chance to just participate together um, with our our, our uh, resident uh, expert arguer. So we'll get, let you guys argue with Jason. Uh, he can play the part of just about anything. So hopefully that will help kind of bring together some of the things we've been talking about in the doctrine of God, the attributes of God specifically, Doctrine of Man that we'll talk about next time. Doctrine of Salvation. Those are going to be your your three areas of uh, of primary defense as we as we work our way through. So we're talking about the attribute of God called uh, God's moral perfection. So God is morally perfect. Um, in essence, everything that God does <coughs> is right. Correct. You can bring it to me. Don't don't be shy now. I don't know when that started. Your shyness. Thank you. Is that what you need all that extra money for? Holy cow. You gave me six bucks. Wow, this is a... Okay. I didn't. Okay, so God, morally perfect. And uh, um, as we as we look through, I, I listed out several things under the definition, but basically flawless, excellent. Uh, perfect, blameless, uh, faithful. So as you work your way through all the different Hebrew words uh, in the Old Testament used uh, toward God in this regard, uh, you have Tamim, Shalim, Tam, Omin, and Kalil. And uh, and also the Hebrew words Telios, Telio'o, Teliotis, obviously all roots of the same uh, word. And then Kartitzo, uh, laying out for us the same concept. So, if we look at the biblical basis, I, I, I don't anticipate a lot of argument on this part or on this point that God is perfect. Sometimes we struggle with those things when we look at the reality of our experience, though, right? We, 
we find ourselves in a place going through something and it's hard to believe that, uh, that, that, that God has our best in mind or is uh, sovereign in that situation. So it's helpful at least, even if we can't necessarily point to it, to know that's what the Bible teaches us, that God is perfect in His ways. So Deuteronomy 32.4, He is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. Important things to remind ourselves. Second Samuel twenty two thirty one. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all those who trust in Him. <coughs> Again, just emphasizing the idea of perfection of God. What He does and the way He does it is, is always right. God is my strength and my power. He makes my way perfect. So... I have a tendency, now not everybody agrees with me, but I have a tendency to believe, uh, I, what I, I call it a high view of God. In other words, I, I see God's fingerprint on everything that happens in my life. Uh, I, I tend to have a lower view of man, so I have less emphasis on my will and more emphasis on God's will, that, that God is working and moving um, that God is able to work in and through, and He takes me specifically on certain journeys in my life that I need to go on because He's developing character in me for something maybe I don't even know down the road. So, so I have a tendency to see. Now, other people don't always agree with me. Um, um, people who come from a stronger Armenian uh, uh, view have a much higher view of what we call human free will. And so they tend to, to, you can, in that view, tend to bring upon yourself a lot of condemnation or responsibility for, if only I had chosen this way, um, then maybe my life would be radically different. So if that's how you feel, you probably don't want to talk to me because I will tell you, your life took the path God wanted it to take. And He took you on the journey He wanted you to have the ups, the downs, the failures, all of those things to prepare you for a work that God still has for you and purposes that He still has so so that God is able to um, to work through our human agency. He chooses to use us in our craziness. So, And yet, God's way is perfect. His way is perfect. So he's, He is working out for us uh, God is working both to will and to do for whose good pleasure? His good pleasure, right? So, so God is is doing a work in and through us. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure I understand it. Does that help you? I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure. I struggle in that. I understand. I don't know if I understand the concept. I understand the basis of the concept that that God has a perfect will, and that, but but that really leans toward a, a strong human free agency that is able to kind of balance between God's permissive and God's perfect. Yeah, kind of. I so I I struggle with the idea that that there's that much flow uh, between what God really wants and what happens. If that makes sense. So, 
So because I, 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 I see God as more sovereign than that, I guess. Um, and I, I'm not sure that I believe that uh, the man has absolute free will. I'm not saying man doesn't have choices. I'm just saying I don't know that man has absolute free will. So, so, so whether you know my my problem's not so much with what man did. It it comes like remember when we talked about providence and we were talking about evil and working our way through that. Um, I, I'm not sure, and I don't know how you would prove it, but I'm not sure that man can do other than what he did. We always say right well. I chose this, but I could have chose that. I'm not, I'm not sure, because you didn't choose that, that that is accurate. What I know is your choice mattered, and it had ramifications for your life, and let's move forward. Or we can spend all our time arguing about how free I am. I would rather argue for God's freedom than mine. So, so I yeah, I struggle with it. And other guys, feel free to interject, but I, I don't know... Uh, I'm not sure in my own mind how to reconcile permissive or where to go to to prove it. The point. Especially after when you started discussing his foreknowledge and his creating because of his foreknowledge. Right. And how much does that actually relate to Yeah. So I don't know if you guys understand what I mean, but when I say... If people have to put themselves, I suppose there's more than one camp or two camps or probably ten camps. <clears throat> but when I consider, okay, what view am I going to follow? I, I want to choose a high view of God and His freedom and, and His sovereignty because I see that everywhere. And then I'm not saying that man doesn't, that there's no choice. I'm saying man does choose and his choices matter. And they carry real weight. Um, I just don't know whether or not he could have chose differently. Therefore, I don't know why there's a need for permissive in a permissive will. And if we argue for moral perfection and God's perfection, then it, it means that, that God is taking the best way to the best result, I guess, is a way of looking at it. Best way would probably have been to start all over with us, you know, when it all went south. And since he didn't do that, right? But when we look at the attributes of God, I just think that's as, as we develop doctrinally, okay, because we'll get into it more when we talk about salvation for sure. When we develop doctrinally, don't start somewhere else and then come to God. So our doctrine starts with God. That's why we're starting with the attributes of God. You guys with me? So our doctrine starts with God. What's God like? Who's God like? What, what does He say about Himself? And then we got to go from there. We don't want to go the other way around. And a lot of times what happens is people start with man. And I think that becomes anthropocentric or man-centered rather than theocentric, God-centered. And I, I want to I try to stay God-centered and faithful to the Word. So... Anyway, that's a long answer for I don't know. Yeah, I bypass it all. Yeah, I bypass it all. 
Sure. Sure. I think you want to be. I think you want to be. You know, sensitive to how the Spirit leads you as you witness and as you share with with people. <coughs> I tend to go right to repentance and deny the fact that they don't know God. So, but that's just me. I'm not telling you that's the only way. But in my opinion, Romans one tells us that the problem with mankind is that he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, that he knows God exists, but he likes his sin, wants to stay in his sin. He's comfortable in his sin, and so he grabs at whatever worldview accomplishes that goal. And uh, um, and I think ultimately he needs to repent. So if nothing else, uh, at the end of that discussion, I've at least laid out the concept that God's calling you to repentance. Not that God doesn't want you, not that God hates you and you have to go to hell. I'm just saying God wants you to repent. If you choose not to repent, that's you. Right? And then if we de- if argument develops in other ways or the Spirit leads other ways, I'm, I'm way open to that. But I just, there are too many times I, I spent a lot of time arguing about a lot of other things and I never got to that. And yeah, I, 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 so to me it makes sense. And we'll, we'll, we'll tear that apart some as we continue to work our way through it. But And fortunately we had that conversation without Jason here. We'd all be arguing about what I just said. So <laughs> Since nobody else wants to argue with me, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, Job 37.16 Do you know how the clouds are balanced? Those wondrous works of Him who is perfect in knowledge. Remember, the Word declares that an, an infinite God is perfect in one attribute. He needs to be perfect. Perfect love, perfect wrath, perfect justice, perfect righteousness. Everybody okay? Uh, Psalm, let's, let's look at oh, Psalm 18.30 As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He's a shield. Oh, we talked about that one. Psalm 19.7 <clears throat> The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Remember, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, all throughout the Psalms, uh, there are synonymous terms used for the word of God. The law, the testimonies, um, the, what else, what else? Precepts, thank you. Um, I, I want to say there's seven of them that he uses in Psalm 119, but, but they're all synonymous terms for Scripture. The Scripture that that, uh, that, that is uh, indeed perfect. Psalm 138.8, The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever, so do not forsake the work of your hands. So, so anyways, as we, as we work our way through in, in, in Matthew 5.48, Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So it's important to understand God's requirement, right? How do we attain perfection then? That's right. And it's important that we understand that. As we look at the, the doctrine of man, what the doctrine of man is going to tell us is we're broken, right? We're fallen. We're incapable of perfection. We're incapable of a whole lot of things. But in Christ, what are we? Just men made perfect. Isn't that what the, the Scripture declares? In Christ, you are just men, justified men, made perfect in Christ. So, in Him, the Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became our sin sacrifice, right? Became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So, it's that relationship that makes us perfect. Okay? And that's not about 
our performance. It's all about that relationship being found in Christ Jesus. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's our goal, right? We want to be those who are transforming our culture. That you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13.10 But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. What do you think 1 Corinthians 13.10 is talking about? What is the perfect thing that is Christ. Agreed. So when Christ comes, we're, we're, 1 Corinthians is obviously after the incarnation, right? Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So we're looking at the return of Christ. When Christ comes back, when that which is perfect has come, then we won't need those things that are in part. Specifically, he's talking about knowledge, um, tongues, uh, prophecy. We won't need those things when Christ comes. Until then, He gives us His Spirit for those opportunities. Again, He is perfect. Let's look down at F. God possesses a holy jealousy and a morally perfect character. The former is what gives God zeal to protect and preserve His holiness. We talked about that last time. The latter is the absolute moral perfection that pervades the character of God. These attributes firmly grounded in Scripture, sound theological reasoning, and the history of the Christian church. Uh, all objections stated against these attributes fail. The attributes are internally consistent. So, really not a, a, a ton of argument in those regards. Uh, the next two attributes that we look at is truthfulness and goodness. You ran out? Oh, you don't have the new one? Sorry, brother. <clears throat> okay. Uh, the Hebrew word for truth, under truthfulness, emeth, means firm, stable, faithful, reliable, correct. The Greek word for truth is aletheia, means truthful, dependable, upright, and real. So, in brief, the term truth, as used in Scripture, means that which... Uh, because it corresponds to reality, is reliable, faithful, and stable. Uh, used of words, truth is telling it like it is. True statements are those that correspond to reality and so are dependable. By contrast, falsehood is telling it like it is not. Woe to him who gives evil for good and good for evil, right? So, 1 John 2.21 I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. In false expressions do not correspond to reality, and the devil is the father of lies. Jesus uh, said in John eight forty four, You are of your father to the devil, and the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie... He speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Next, truth is absolute. You will find a lot of discussion, especially nowadays, with this concept. The truth is absolute. Um, even saying truth is not absolute is an absolute statement and therefore self-refuting. So the argument is kind of lame, but truth is uh, by its nature absolute. God cannot lie. Second Corinthians one eighteen. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. That means it wasn't 
going back and forth, up and down. Titus 1-2, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. And Hebrews 6-18, That by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And then the third part of the, the absolutism of the truth of God is that His Word cannot pass away. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And in Psalm 117.2, For His merciful kindness is great to us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. <coughs> Praise the Lord. So, His Word doesn't pass away. His Word is our foundation for truth. God cannot lie. We have the truth. We hold to the truth. Absolute truth is found uh, between its pages. So let's look at the biblical basis for truthfulness. Uh, again, Deuteronomy 32.4, He is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are justice, a God of truth. And without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has He said, and will He not do? Or has He spoken, and will He not make it good? 1 Samuel 15.29 And the strength of Israel will not lie or relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Psalm 31.5 Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Psalm 33.4 For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. John 14.6 We all know, right? Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life, no man comes to the Father except by me. John fifteen twenty six. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. First Thessalonians 1, 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Uh, Hebrews 6.18, again, we have the two immutable things. It's impossible for God to lie. Uh, and we have the strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. First so John 4.6, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So because God is truthful, we can trust His promises. Uh, we have that in Psalm 89. Uh, we can be assured of our salvation, 2 Timothy 2.13. We are protected, Psalm 91.4. <clears throat> we are saved, Ephesians 1.13. We are sanctified, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We are liberated, set free. We are established forever, Psalm 117.2. We should always speak the truth. In Ephesians 4.25, remember I told you, attributes that are communicable, uh, God expects to see reflected in our life. Hebrews, or I'm sorry, Ephesians 4.25 says, speak the truth in what? In love. Speak the truth in love. So we want to speak the truth. We should walk in truth, Psalm 86.11. We should serve Him in truth, 1 Samuel 12.24. We should diligently study His truth, Right? Be diligent. Present yourself a worker of God. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, John 17.17. 17. 
John 17, 17 says, Thy word is truth. We should worship Him in truth. And we should pray to be led in truth. Psalm 25. There are a few objections when we talk about the truth of God. I'll give you an opportunity to look at them and kind of work your way through them. But I thought we'd look at the first one. <coughs> um, uh, the, the responses are similar, I think. If, if God is totally truthful, then why did He tell Samuel to utter a partial truth? He told Samuel to give only part of the truth when he told uh, when he said to tell Saul they had come to offer a sacrifice. In fact, he had also come to uh, anoint David to be king. The response, what God told Samuel to say was completely truthful, not partly. He did come to offer sacrifice and Saul never asked him uh, and he never answered the question as to whether he had any other purposes for his trip. God does not condone partial truths that directly imply a falsehood. Uh, It's clear from his condemnation of Abraham when he asked Sarah to say she was his. uh, When he asked Sarah to say she was his sister, she was his half sister. But answering the question this way led the king of Egypt to believe she was not his wife, uh, which is what he wanted to know. So implying she was not Abraham's uh, wife, Sarah lied. So the the idea is. answering the fullness of the question when they're uh, asking. Now, he does bring up the point as we work our way through the idea of the truthfulness of God. Uh, I thought something that was was kind of interesting in Objection 3. Um, in, in Exodus 1, 15-22, Pharaoh commanded hero, Hebrew midwives to kill all male babies. Remember? They not only refused, but they also lied to the king when he inquired of it. Uh, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. That it, thus it appears that God condoned their lie. Uh, I thought the answer was, <coughs> was uh, interesting in light of it. A lot of different uh, views when, when scholars come to, to decide how it is that, that this all should work. We all know... The lie of Rahab, right, when she said the, they went this way and they were hiding upstairs. Uh, same thing as the, the lie of the Hebrew midwives, among others. <clears throat> um, I thought I thought it was good. I, I guess, I don't know if it's good. I, th- I thought I liked how how they put the, the ideas together. Well, let me just read it to you. If I try to find it, and then I'll mess it up. Scholars differ on how to interpret the passage. Some claim that God blessed the midwives for their refusal to kill the children, not for their lie. They claim God blessed them like Rahab in spite of, but not because of their lie. Other scholars claim that God does not condone this or any other lie, even in a conflict situation. Uh, Rather, we ought to do the lesser evil, which is lying, and then confess our sin to God. However, it is difficult to make any sense out of a view that says we have a moral obligation to do what is not moral. Further, Jesus faced all kinds of evil situations and He never sinned. If sin is unavoidable in this kind of scenario, then Jesus sinned, which the Bible declares He did not. If He did not face extremely difficult situations, then He could not be our complete moral example, since we would then not have His example to follow. It would seem better (coughs) to argue that in unavoidable conflicts, we should suspend our obligation to keep the lower command in view of your overriding obligation to keep the higher. 
Thus, in case of the midwives, mercy showing was a greater duty than truth-telling. For example, if an angry neighbor asks you to return the gun you borrowed so he can kill his wife, your duty to save her life takes precedence over your obligation to return his property. I thought it was an interesting line of argument. In either way, viewing the situation, God never condones telling a lie. Uh, it is only when there is a higher duty to another attribute of God, like mercy, that one's duty to tell the truth is suspended. And even in this case, the conflict is not with God. His attributes are all harmonious. It is inside this finite, fallen world. Sir? Absolutely, well, absolutely, and I think, I, I mean, obviously, I think we have scriptural uh, stories that tell us of of evidences where people lied. But in every one of those cases, uh, you're you're basically, if a believer talking about somebody who's just now coming to know God, Rahab didn't know God any more than 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 anything, right? And and I think she responds. Uh, within her nature, in her, in her belief, it was a uh, higher, more obligation to save the spies than to be truthful in all things. Um, but I don't know that. Uh, I think the point is that's not God's condoning of the lie. That's just where they were, where I think those people were at. And God, as He lays out for us, never did it. He He always told them. The truth. He always said. Many times Jesus answered the heart of the Pharisees rather than the heart of the question. But, but it was, it was ultimately answering the that which needed answered. Uh, you know what I'm saying? So, <clears throat> but yeah, I don't think I don't think it's ever good to lie. I think it's always what God's word calls us it's, is to be truthful and speak the truth in love. So how you do that, I guess, is is up to you. But we can always. Be truthful. I don't have to say what I'm thinking all the time. Right? So, I can, I think I can be truthful and loving in every regard. Um, and I think that's, that's a better reflection of, of who God is. Now, when the Nazis come to your house and ask you if you're hiding Jews, are you obligated to be truthful? You know. Of course, you dummy. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I think I would argue in that situation. We're not in that situation, but I think I would argue in that situation. The higher good is to save life. So, I think I would I would be okay lying in that situation. But that's not the same as as a lot of what is going on, right? Uh, you know, but. We'll have to work it out. Because all we know is God is truth. And we know God's word is truth. And we know that God speaks the truth. So, but we also know we live in a broken place. And there, I think there will, there will be a day when speaking the truth is going to cause you uh, large ramifications. If it's about me, I won't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with going to jail. I don't have a problem with, 
you know, facing the law of the land, if the law of the land, if it became illegal or whatever to, to be a believer. I don't have a problem with any of that. But if I'm trying to save a life... Yeah, uh, how many how many Bibles are in China? Because because when they go to the border and they say, "Do you have any illegal things?" <clears throat> they say, "No." So, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think I, uh, you know, would that fall under the lesser magistrates? I don't think. Um, <coughs> At least not smuggling Bibles to China wouldn't, but but yeah, I would follow the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. It would would speak to issues within our culture that are changing or becoming uh, uh, having animosity toward uh, people of faith and people who are Christians who hold the position as a lesser magistrate should be our our representative to try to get those things on track, but. I'm not a lesser magistrate, so I'm about as less a magistrate as I can get. Not very much authority, but I can still use what I have. Um, so, anyways, there's definitely some things you gotta you gotta kind of chew on, right? Because the truthfulness of God leads us to this place. How do we how how do we we want to we want to reflect that truthfulness? Now, I also know. I can't remember what whose story it is. I know it's China, and they were, you know, the the maybe some of you guys remember the book. I don't remember what the book was, but the missionary tells a story of praying that he knows that God can make blind eyes see. So he prayed that God would make seeing eyes blind, and he had Bibles all over his car, and there was no hiding them. It was not like in some special place, and if they looked. They were there, and they searched his car, poured over the boxes, opened the boxes up, and and then said, "Okay, you're good, go." And he's like, "I don't know, I don't know what happened, but that's God, you know, that's God." And I know personally, we took um, uh, uh, gifts and clothes and building supplies into Mexico to build people homes to provide. Uh, clothing and food and needs for the less fortunate and all of that was illegal. You are not allowed to do that. Broke the law. And uh, I didn't have to lie to anybody. They're, they searched, they walked through the bus, they did their thing. If they find it, they take it. And if they don't, I get to give it. But you know, that's just part of, I think, part of a reality of being in a fallen world and trying to do the things. You know, if you were in Saudi Arabia, Bill couldn't stand on a corner and, and preach the gospel, right? <clears throat> or he goes where? To jail. Yeah, if he's lucky. <clears throat> or he just disappears and nobody knows what happened to him. Uh, but I don't know that, I think when the law comes into violation with with God's law, then we are obligated to disobey. And that's where it does touch the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. So, those are things that may be on our horizon. Ready? When they tell you? Huh? Agonatsamai. Agonatsamai. That's right. You're ready.
Yep. Let's look at the let's look at God's goodness, omnibenevolence. That's the next trait. His truthfulness is omnibenevolence. <clears throat> if love is defined as willing the good to its object, then it, for all practical purposes, love and goodness can be treated treated synonymously. So, when we talk about omnibenevolence, we're talking about God is love. But but we're also saying that it's more than just what we how we would define love. It's that God is all good all the time. So it's his omnibenevolence. It's the primary argument that uh, that is given against some forms of of Calvinism is that uh, uh, God's omnibenevolence is being violated. Um, but the idea is that God is all good. The basic Hebrew term for love is Hesed. You, you say you're supposed to gravel a little bit when you say it, so it's Chesed, and uh, the basic. Uh, Greek word for love is agapeo. There's other ones, but but basically you have agape and chesed, both describing uh, the love of God. Ultimately, we want to know the definition of that word is 1 Corinthians 13. Take 1 Corinthians 13, pack it down, squeeze it all out, and you've got the definition of love. I think God's definition of love. So <clears throat> the biblical basis for this is... Uh, Deuteronomy 10.15 The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. And He chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. <coughs> so the love of God uh, for, for His people, the nation of Israel. You know, Isaiah 61.8 For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and I will make them an everlasting covenant. Uh, Isaiah 63.9 In all their affliction... He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His pity, He redeemed them. He bore them and carried them all the days of old. Jeremiah 31.3, part of uh, uh, the New Covenant. Uh, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with what? Everlasting love. Probably some of my... my uh, Greatest struggle with, um, I don't know a better word for it. So I always call it replacement doctrine or replacement theology. The idea that God's finished with Israel or done with Israel. And, and you know, we have the concept of everlasting covenant and everlasting love. And so I don't know how those things end if they're everlasting. Uh, I'm not suggesting they're saved in any way different than we are individually, but but I I would say that if there's a theology that says Israel's out and we're we replace Israel or or we're the new Israel um, and those promises to Israel are fulfilled in us, um, I struggle with that. I don't know how to reconcile that biblically. So, <clears throat> but the idea of everlasting love lasts a long time, right? He, uh, Hosea 3.1 Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So, hard to get out of that concept of love that God has in Hosea. Basically, in Hosea, God says, Go get a woman who doesn't want to be with you. You were married to her. She left you. She's with these other guys now. She don't want to come home. Go get her. And then he tells Hosea, that's how I am with the nation of Israel. 
They don't want me, but I'm going to get them. I'm going to bring them back. <clears throat> I'm going to love them with an everlasting love. It says in Hosea 11.4, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from the neck. I stooped and I fed them. God's expression of love for a disobedient people. Which actually gives me hope because I don't know. Maybe there's somebody here who's not disobedient, but I fall in that category. I fall in the category of disobedient. I, I'm dumb still. I'd love to tell you I've reached sinless perfection, but all you have to do is ask my wife or anybody else who knows me for 10 minutes. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm not asking you. But, but I'm thankful for the fact that God's love is not predicated on my performance. So, yeah. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Jesus said in Luke 6.35, in terms of uh, our reflection, remember I said in talking about communicable attributes, it should be reflected in our life as well, right? That's why Jesus could say in Luke 6.35, Love your enemies. Why? Well, has God ever loved someone who wasn't his enemy? The Bible says if we're friends with the world, we're at enmity with God. We are in a position of enemy. He just We just read Hosea, right? That said, Israel, the nation whom he chose and called out of the Gentile nations, didn't want him. Wanted to be with other men, other gods, right? So, <clears throat> Jesus saying, love your enemies, do good. And lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Why does he say that? Because that's how we reflect God. Those are all things God is in, in that attribute of love. And you will be sons of the Most High. It's important that we recognize when God says you'll be sons of the Most High. Well, what, is, what is it that they most like to say about a son to his father? Oh, you look like your dad. That's why when Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, you are of your father, the devil, that was kind of harsh, right? Because who did they resemble? He says, the devil was a father of lies and so are you. A liar, destroyer, murderer. That's how you're acting. So we want those, these attributes of God, right, to be reflected in and through us. Uh, why? Because the Most High, look what he says, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Bible says the rain falls on the evil and the good, right? The goodness of God, the omnibenevolence of God, falls on all kinds, repentant and unrepentant. <coughs> John three sixteen. Everybody knows that one. For God so, oh, good deal, huh? God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Romans five five. Hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our heart by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we have the capability, right? If we're saved, we have the Holy Spirit, then the love of God is... And the word for poured, by the way, is dumped, gushed. It's not sprinkled. It's poured out, heaping piles of love being poured into our life through the Holy Spirit. 
Romans 5.8 God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. So we have an example. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing, right? That's a short version of Romans 8, 35 to 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 <coughs> gives us the definition. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ compels us. That's our motivation. That's that thing that energizes us to go. It's why, it's why men stand on the corner and share the gospel. It's why people stop and talk to people. It's why we want to share Christ. Because it's the love of Christ that compels us. Because we judge thusly that if one died for all, then all died. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, I love this one. I know that Georgie loves this too, right? But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, He made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. <clears throat> Ephesians three nineteen, To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. <clears throat> to know the love of Christ. Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love. This is our reflection again, right? Walk in love as Christ also loved us and, gave, and has given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. Titus 3, 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared... 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, because He laid His life, He laid down His life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We have the example laid out before us. 1 John 4, 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is... Everybody knows that one, right? Uh, 1 John 4, 9. In this the love of God is manifest toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son the propitiation, substitute sacrifice for our sin. 1 John 4.16 And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God. And God in him. <coughs> so as we look at it, God is not only completely truthful, He is absolutely good. Now you're going to have lots of argument with that, right? How can a loving God allow evil in the world? In which case, you need to refer back to what we talked about under the providence of God when we, when we discussed the problem of evil. Now, you may not like that response. You might say, you know, I don't know if I agree with you, Jackie, on, on that concept. Um, in which case, there are other responses, right, to, to, uh, toward evil. So, um, but you are not left without a response. Just remember, when, we've, when we develop, that's what we talked about in the beginning, we develop the doctrine 
our, the solid ground upon which we stand, what God's Word teaches us, we start with God and then we move out from there. So we start with God. This is what the Word says. Now, if I have to reconcile evil, then, then I do that having begun at this position with God. The, the, uh, the, the solid footing is simple that, simply that God is good. God is love. He's omnibenevolent. Now, I, I'm, when I reconcile evil, I start there. I don't try to get there from evil. That makes sense? Yeah. I, I prefer not to do that. Uh, he has perfect charity or love. He has perfect integrity. Uh, he is all truthful and all loving. It's impossible for him to lie. And he is loved by his very nature. As such, these attributes provide complete confidence in his pronouncements and his promises. Uh, last two that we have is mercy and wrath. Mercy and wrath. So mercy, sometimes people talk about mercy <clears throat> as an activity of God, not an attribute. Something that God does, but not necessarily something that God is. But it, it seems to be uh, something that's, that's, that's talked about and emphasized enough in Scripture that, that it's awful close. Um, either way, uh, it doesn't, I don't think it hurt us to take a look at it. Um, I think it's rooted in God's nature. So the definition, there are several Hebrew words that are associated with mercy. Uh, kaporeth, which means ransom, propitiatory, or which is a long word for substitute. I don't know why they choose those, but they do. Or the mercy seat. It's the word used for uh, often for mercy seat. Also, hilasterion in the Greek, which I don't have listed, is also a word used for mercy seat, uh, which refers to Christ as propitiation. Uh, limon <clears throat> uh, in is Greek. Uh, depicts merciful, sympathetic attitude, both used of <coughs> humans and of God. Elios is employed of one human toward another, as well as of God toward human beings. And Optirnos, uh, carrying the idea of compassion or pity, uh, whether of God or of all people. So the word mercy is used of human beings in saving life, always merciful, in prospering on a journey, in delivering from prison, in not destroying lives, in receiving the favor of kings, <clears throat> and in answer to prayer to receive the favor of another person. Those are all merciful terms used in human relationships, the point being that God's mercy is all this and more. Unfailing, unchanging, everlasting, and manifest in great compassion. Having said that, God's mercy is not given to all. Is it? Or is God's mercy given to all? What do you think? All. Huh? All. To all? Can you support that? It's a good idea. There's this one scripture that I'm going to go to. What's it say? I, thank you. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Would imply that not all receive mercy. Right? Do all receive the love of God? Well, in some way, surely, the Bible says that 
that the kind of the concept that that the rain falls on the evil and the good. In that way, there's there's always mercy from God for everyone in the fact that everybody gets another day, right, without God's judgment. So that would kind of destroy my argument is that mercy being an attribute or an activity, we have to be an attribute or we have activity. I would think. I mean. When, when I put mercy and wrath together for for this purpose, um, and I could probably make I could probably make an argument that 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 there is a level at which mercy is universal. Um, but I, I'm really looking at it from the terms of mercy goes to the repentant and wrath goes to the unrepentant. And sure, that's what I mean. I think I could make an argument for for a, a concept, but the the point of view that I'm looking for is that God is merciful toward the repentant and wrathful toward the unrepentant, and and that that's how that attribute is expressed. Right. I'm not saying he doesn't offer mercy, but the, the, to me, the extent the extending of mercy hinges on repentance. What do you think? Man, mercy can be without being an activity without an attribute. Sure. Yeah, and man, an unrepentant man can show mercy. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but I I that's what do you guys think? No comments? You guys are going to let me get away with everything tonight? No. So far? Jason left at just the right time again, so... Give him enough rope. <laughs> <laughs> Give him enough, and he will hang himself. Well, let's look at God's mercy. First, God's mercy is rooted in His goodness and love. So, uh, Exodus fifteen thirteen: You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed... You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Exodus 34, 7. Keeping mercy for thousands. Which, by the way, is, could be a term used for more than thousands, by the way. Thousands tends to be a number used for synonymous with, with innumerable. But keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin... By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Um, but speaking of the mercy of the Lord, um, Numbers fourteen, eighteen, and 19, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. We've heard this. Uh, pardon the iniquity of the people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Always when we come to God in an attitude of repentance, what are we, what are we asking Him for? Mercy. I don't know anybody who says, Lord, I want... Well, who, who says that they knows what they're asking for, who says, Lord, I, give me justice. You guys do all you want. I don't want justice. I don't want what I deserve. I prefer mercy. Mercy and grace, that's a great line to be in, right? The, the, the line of justice and wrath, bad, bad, no, don't be there. Don't be there. 
Second uh, um, uh, Chronicles five thirteen. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments and music, and praised the Lord, saying, "For He is good; His mercy endures how long? Forever." That the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. Uh, we see God's mercy is great. Um, Genesis nineteen nineteen. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. Who who's he talking to? Huh? Mm, too early. Uh, maybe. Talking to the angels. The same line is used by who else? Earlier, like five, six. Cain, yeah. Cain, Cain uses the same line under under the judgment of God, right? Interesting. Uh, mercy of God is great. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy. God's mercy is everlasting. <clears throat> His mercy those to whom He gives mercy, His mercy endures forever. There are whole psalms that just repeat that phrase over and over again. So, the idea that His mercy endures forever. What about God's mercy is faithful? Uh, you and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The, the, the faithfulness of God's mercy poured out on His people. Therefore, Know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations and with those who love Him and keep His commandments. So, kind of have that idea laid out. God's mercy is faithful. What about, is God's mercy long-suffering? God's mercy is any of those other things. It also has to be long-suffering, right? Because... It is poured out on a contrary people. Uh, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy. Uh, God's mercy is received by the repentant. Uh, he pardons the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. It's the call of repentance by the repentant, or I'm sorry, the call to mercy by the repentant people. Deuteronomy thirteen seventeen, So that none of the accursed things shall remain in your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of His anger and show you mercy. So God's mercy certainly seems to hinge on that attitude of repentance. Um, then I, I just wanted to kind of get a, a view toward God's mercy and the idea of the mercy seat. Keep in mind, just in terms of pictures, you have... The Ark of the Covenant is really two pieces of furniture, right? It's the box, the Ark, into which I think God has then placed several examples of the failure of His people. And then what goes on top? The mercy seat, right? Which is the covering. It's the covering. The box is made up of gold overlaid wood. Wood overlaid with gold. 
just, just want you to kind of see the, the, the pictures that are painted in the Old Testament and the New. Wood was a symbol of that which is alive. It becomes a, a symbol of humanity. And gold is a symbol of divinity. So you have humanity covered with divinity. Into which went what? All the failures of men. Becomes a symbol of Christ, right? Every I think every piece of furniture in the in the temple and tabernacle specifically were pictures of Christ. On top of which was a mercy seat, which is hammered gold. No wood, hammered gold. Hammered gold. The the idea that that God is beaten to provide that mercy. Where did the blood go? In the box? Went on the mercy seat, right? The the priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and so God would overlook now think about the stories it's just consistent all the way through scripture think about the stories where they the Philistines had the ark and they opened it they played around with it they put tumors in it because they were all getting hemorrhoids remember they made golden hemorrhoids and put golden you guys don't remember that story oh you need to spend some time in the old testament so they, <clears throat> the Philistines cover it up with that and they put it on two just weaned calves. No, what about cows? Cows with just weaned. With, with just calves. Say that one more time slower. What they did is they took two cows. Cows with, calves, they just had calves. Okay. And they, and they put <coughs> cows on, on, in the oak and, and, and let them go. And they said if they don't go, then... Yeah, they shouldn't have left. The point is they shouldn't have left because they just had calves. But they went lowing. Yes. Yeah. All the way. Yeah, they didn't care about the calf. Nope. Because God was guiding them. And where'd they go? Well, it is. No, what's, what, what city? Huh? Do you remember the city? No. Oh, you're not helping me, John. I was hoping you were going to remember. So they go to a city. You guys can read the story. Right the the and what happens? The people, the people get it, right? And they're like, oh, this is cool. The ark is here. What'd they do? They took the mercy seat off. What happened? They all died. Now, wait a minute. The Philistines opened it up. Nothing happened to them. But the children of Israel knew, right? That the box, the box is a failure of man. What was in it? The, ten, the broken tablets, the Ten Commandments. The Aaron's rod that budded, the rebellion of man, the a bowl of manna, right? What's it? The bread from heaven, the spies, what's it? So... All of that stuff is in it, covered by the mercy seat. Because of the mercy seat, because of the covering, then God didn't judge. You take the covering off, and what happens? You have the wrath of God. And so the Bible says that Jesus Christ became the mercy seat, the hilasterion. In fact, Hebrews describes it here. uh, Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And He came not with the blood of goats or calves, but with His own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So remember, the tabernacle is a copy of heaven. And so the mercy seat and all that is symbol is a symbol on earth of a heavenly reality. And Christ, as our high priest, by His death, sprinkled His blood on the mercy seat. That's why there's no more sacrifice. One sacrifice once for all. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. So, 
He says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So that's what 1 John 2, 2 says. He Himself is our propitiation, mercy seat. And not for ours only, but for us also for the whole world. He's the provision. He's the provision for all who would come before God. The implications is that God's mercy, patience, grace may be seen as three separate attributes or specific aspects of God's goodness. So when you look at, at lists of the attributes of God, a lot of some of the ones we've talked about will merge into other attributes. But the idea is the definitions given here show these attributes as special examples of God's goodness. God's mercy means God's goodness towards those who are in misery and distress. That is, every person in a sinful condition. God's grace means God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. Again, those who are in sin. And God's patience means God's goodness in withholding punishment. Uh, God's patience is expressed everywhere, right? The fact that he hasn't judged today is examples of God's patience. So it kind of gives us a brief view of uh, the mercy of God. I guess my, my point being the mercy of God is expressed towards a repentant. It is expressed in the sense that it's not judgment day today. So that's in, in a sense merciful toward all. But ultimately, his okay. ultimate mercy. Yeah. Kirjath Jerem. Oh, Kirjath That's what I remember. Of course, that's it. Kirjath. It had another name, too. That's the Roberts. Yeah. Well, between the two Roberts, I think we got it right. I don't know. Our only problem you, between you and I is you don't know how to spell your name. I know. Short of that, we're good. Okay. <laughs> Let's look at the wrath of God. God's not only merciful to the repentant, but wrathful upon the unrepentant. Um, just as an example, you'll notice there's no shortage of Scripture for this. Right? What do I got? Three pages? One, two, three, four pages. And a little bit more. <clears throat> no shortage in any way on the concept of the wrath of God. So, um, it, the Bible frequently talks about it, but the idea is if God loves all that is right and good and all that conforms to His moral character, then it should not be surprising, surprising that He hates everything that is opposed to it. That's the wrath of God. God's wrath is directed against sin. And so it is closely related to His holiness and His justice. God's wrath means that He intensely hates all sin. <clears throat> Where, which is why I thought it was so good to kind of have an understanding of the, the jealousy, godly jealousy, because it really helped, it helped me anyway to really see God's wrath um, in, a, in a different light. So, I'm not going to read four pages of God's wrath. You're welcome. 
to have at it. <clears throat> There's a couple of, of scriptures that I hold to. <clears throat> uh, if I want to understand the wrath of God, Romans 1, 18-23, which is on the fourth page of the list, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what kind of ungodliness? All of it, right? All ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. What made them unrighteous? Who suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They suppressed the truth. Which means they in some way realize the truth and they don't want to they don't they don't want to see it. So they're holding it down, like holding a beach ball underwater. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's God talking, right? Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, and professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Could have read the whole chapter of Romans 1, but it really lays out the concept, right? The concept of being under the wrath of God. In fact, John 3.36, which is just before that, says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But what? But the wrath of God abides on him. Does he have to stay there? I don't think so. But the Bible says he does because he loves his sin. He loves his sin. That's the condemnation, right? Whatever that is, whatever it's not. I don't think it, that sin is the same for all for everyone. But I definitely think that we see that expressed. And, and I don't care if it's a Muslim. I don't care if it's a Mormon. I don't care if it's Jehovah Witness. I don't care if it's an utter uh, atheist. The reason they choose not to see the truth is because they love their sin. Whether it's a sin of pride. Where, whether it's a, the, the sin of idolatry and creating a God in an image that they can uh, understand and feel better represents who God really is. It's all a rejection of the truth, a suppression of the truth, and a belief in the lie. And God said if they won't believe the truth, then they will believe the lie. Right? The whole fast, and then their argument will be, "I don't have enough evidence, or you got to show me, or this can't be, or I can't understand, or I can't comprehend." Which all I think leads us back to Romans one. Look, you got to repent if you want your eyes to open. You need to repent. So, Ephesians two three, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. How many of us were children of wrath? Every single one of us. Because the next thing he's going to say is, But God, right? Who's rich in mercy with a great love with which he has loved us, has made us alive together in Christ, right? 
Uh, and then the other one I really want us to focus on is First Thessalonians 5.9. For God has not appointed us to wrath. If, and I believe it's true, that the cross and the suffering of Christ was the outpouring of the wrath of God upon His Son, we are not appointed to wrath. If we are in Christ Jesus, we are not appointed to wrath. I don't mean that we're not appointed to suffering. I don't mean that we're not appointed to the wrath of this world. But whose wrath are we not appointed to? We cannot ever be under the wrath of God. So wherever that leads us eschatologically in our study of end times... Wherever it goes, it simply means what it says. We are not under the wrath of God. Period. We can all agree on that, right? But we are to obtain salvation through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Right? So if we're His, wrath of God doesn't abide on us. Now, the wrath of God is not the same thing as a, a, a tornado. The wrath of God is not... This, the wrath of God, you can read about it from uh, Revelation 6 to 19. You can read about it. It's intense. God's, God's outpouring of the vials and bowls of His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Those other instances, I'm not saying they're not outside of God's control. I'm just saying they're not God's wrath. They could be judgment, chastisement. God uses it all, right? To bring about His purpose. And we may not fully understand at any given day, but last I checked, we weren't God. That's His job. I don't want it. I'm not able to, to do it. I'd be a bad choice. Revelation 19.15 says, Now out of His mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Who's he talking about? Revelation 19. Jesus Christ. <coughs> who is this who comes from Basra, walking through the Jezreel Valley, covered with blood? Where have you been? I have been trampling the grapes of wrath, right? And the blood flowed to the horse's bridle. So, any, any way you, you look at it, and we're not probably going to delve into a lot of eschatological issues before I get into Revelation. So, But the idea simply is outpouring of God's wrath, right? And what we know as believers, those who have obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ... Jesus bore the wrath of God so that we would not. Where that takes us kind of depends on, on a lot of other views. But that is true. That part's true. So the theological basis for the wrath of God, wrath flows from God's holiness. Paul wrote, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God is so holy he cannot look upon sin with approval. Thus, he cannot overlook sin forever. It must be punished. And it will be. 
Wrath flows from God's righteousness. A kindred characteristic from which wrath flows is God's righteousness or justice. Romans states, Because of your stubborn stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. And wrath flows from God's jealousy. One of God's names is Jealous. Moses wrote, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Ezekiel added, Therefore this is uh, what the Sovereign Lord says, I will now bring Jacob back from captivity, and will have compassion on all the people of Israel. I will be zealous for my holy name. Uh, That word zealous, same word. It is because of his jealous zeal to protect his own supremacy that God executes wrath on evil. Deuteronomy 29.20 declares the Lord will never be willing to forgive him. His wrath and zeal will burn against that man. So the man who is not repentant. Mercy and wrath are matched pair. God's moral characteristics. The former exercised on the on the repentant, the latter on the unrepentant. While some believe these are incompatible, they form a unity in the character of God. They are consistent because they are exercised on different people. The same person does not get the wrath of God and the mercy of God. So, that kind of leads us through the attributes of God. There are some crazy thing like a, I don't know, what do we got, 136 pages or 134 pages of the attributes of God. Knock yourself out. If you are... Um, are looking through them or working your way through them you have questions about them I just encourage you right to search the scripture Hebrews, look it up see what see what you think where you land on it right it's not a good excuse to say well I would have been okay but I listened to Jackie God's going to say who's Jackie the last I checked you still had a Bible and you have my spirit and you have the same abilities right and I'm I am never one to shy from a argument I, it's kind of fun and it's some and some things i'd like to be proven wrong because some things i'd like to go i'd like to swing the other way i'm okay with that so you know knock yourself out um a lot of that will we probably won't have a lot of that that we'll discuss next time it'll be a brief we won't go as in-depth on the doctrine of man um and then uh doctrine of salvation uh, again won't be as won't be 134 pages I would assume a day or, or one day for each one that we'll discuss it and kind of work our way through the ideas and what it, what it means. And then we'll get into the arguing. Sound good? Or other arguing. Sound like a plan? Any questions? Comments? You guys are way too easy. Carl, I'll hook you up with all 134 pages. It's kind of pointless to have the last eight. So, but uh, then you can just look through them, you know, as, as you will, and uh, kind of give you the foundation or a little bit of foundation moving forward. Okay, who wants to pray us home? It's not nine thirty. We should be rejoicing. Jason was so excited to leave; he didn't even make it. I hope that doesn't mean he's having a baby. Could be. 
It's that time, right? I know he had a girl. What's the deal? I know they bought all. They had blue paint. They had all boys stuff, boys diapers, boys, and they had a girl. Yeah, I texted him. Surprise. He's blessed. So, so the funny thing is that day when that happened, Jason was freaking out because his he's supposed to have a boy too. He's like, oh, what if they're wrong? I said, you're going to have three girls. What? Either way, there's a baby coming. Ready or not, here he or she comes. The best laid plans of doctors, huh? I guarantee. <laughs> Hope so. <laughs> what do you do if they're wrong? I mean, what? What am I going to do? Uh, I'll sue you for being wrong. Yeah, <laughs> you're definitely not going to do that. Might think that you won't do it. All right, who's got it? All right, Daniel, take it. Lord, I just uh, thank you for this time. <coughs> thank you for uh, your word, Lord, and what reveals to us that it reveals who you are to us, Lord. And I just pray that we press in and that we would just uh, just try to discover who the unknowable God is. Lord, I just ask that as we uh, do press on that, that you reveal yourself to us. Lord, it says that if we seek you, that uh, you will uh, reward us. And I just pray, Lord, that you would just reveal yourself to us. Lord, I just pray you watch over us, protect us, and uh, bring us safely back here on Sunday. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. See you Easter morning. Five o'clock, John, you're going to help us fry up a bunch of